This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Atlanta. Defined by grace, 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 community, community, community and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Over these last few weeks, we have been talking about this very difficult topic of church hurt. And we spent some time, hopefully, validating some of the feelings that you, myself, and other folks have had in dealing with pain that we may have or or are currently experiencing at the hands of those within church communities or even more so church leadership. We talked about what it means to actually feel like this is something we can name and something that we can feel validated in and not necessarily shamed for feeling these things. There are legitimate situations where real pain and real brokenness and real church hurt have occurred. And we should not feel guilty because we have those wounds. Uh, We need to be able to claim them and name them uh, and and for, as church leaders and church members, we need to understand where people are. And in that understanding, church hurt becomes increasingly difficult. It can be difficult because at the end of the day, church hurt is so crushing. We are a community of people and we call ourselves a family. And so when someone is hurt within the family, we should feel it. And we should feel completely broken by it. And it not just crushes our emotions, it does indeed crush our soul. When you are on the receiving end of those who have professed to love Jesus and professed to love you, and then in some way hurt by abusing you, that is debilitating. If you've ever been betrayed by a loved one, when spouses have been betrayed by the other, it is soul-crushing because you place a very deep sense of intimacy and trust into the other person or into that structure. So we need to understand that, that when you feel, if you are in a place where you feel or have felt real church hurt, we want you to feel validated and know we acknowledge, we all should acknowledge, that that can feel debilitating. That can feel completely, uh, you can feel so downtrodden, you can feel so broken, you can feel powerless. And because of that, it can be near impossible to face that kind of pain. It can feel near impossible to not just face the pain, but to disentangle all of the brokenness that has occurred at the hands of church folks or church leadership, and you have to disentangle that from the very character of God. Many times we fall into these rhythms where the pain I experienced in church is synonymous then with pain I must be experiencing from God. And that is also something, it's difficult and it can become very dangerous. Because when leaders or church folks misrepresent God, Anytime you see the misrepresentation of God in an unhealthy leader or an unhealthy church member, it makes sense to be angry. 
It makes sense to feel embittered at times. It makes sense to feel any combination of, of negative emotions and even vitriol because of what has occurred without any real accountability. This is why there are some who have experienced this at such high frequency that they decide, I don't know if I can be a part of a church again. And that is understandable. Please hear me. The first reaction to hearing those things for a lot of church leaders, our, our, our response can often too quickly be, well, then you need to get yourself together. Well, you need to make sure you know who God is for yourself. Well, you shouldn't be just putting all your trust in me. And those things are true. But if that's our first response, what that says is our first response is not accountability and humility. Our first response is assigning blame. That should not be what loving relationship looks like. And so to that end, I believe that there is another way to deal with and possibly even heal from church hurt. So we start, as I, like I said last week, churches oftentimes want to jump to the healing first. And really what they really want, uh, what they want you to do is to forbear the pain that happened, overlook it and keep moving. We're not talking about forbearance. We're talking about genuine healing and reconciliation. And so what we want to do is talk about what are some healthy ways to move through and deal with. We may still have to hold it, but how do we heal from church hurt? I'm going to use this analogy that I think can be very helpful in identifying some unhealthy ways or some unhelpful ways that we may process our church hurt. And I use the example of um, an, inc- an amazing tool that exists. I'm not, a, I'm not a tool guy at all. Anybody who knows me knows you don't want me even putting up a wall because it will fall back down. But if I were to be this great per- aficionado of tools and, and working with your hands, imagine for a moment that I have this incredible tool. And this tool is one of the most well-designed tools. It accomplishes uh, functions that no one tool should ever be able to do. But somehow, we created one that does. It's one that hammers nails. It's one that paints your walls. It's one uh, that can sweep up floors and pay your bills if you needed to. Imagine whatever this tool is. It's incredible. No one's ever seen it before. I call you up and say, hey, I want you to be able to see this tool. I want you to experience the beauty and the wonder and the, the, the extraordinary ability of this tool. I promise you this tool is going to bring benefits that you heretofore have never experienced. You are going to be so glad that you had it and you'll never want to go without it. And you are like, well, listen, I trust you. And if you're saying that this has been so good for you, bring it over. I'll check it out. So I'll come over to the house. I pull up, I get out of my car. I go into the trunk. I retrieve the tool. And in my retrieval, I look over and I see a brand new vehicle, whatever your favorite vehicle is, you have it in your driveway. And so I say, hey, listen, let me show you something. I go over, I take the tool, and I start knocking out the windows of the car. And I start uh, deflating the tires. I start ruining the paint job. I open up the hood and I start ruining aspects of the engine. And you're just staring at me. And you're like, wait a minute. I, I invited you to my home. I invited you because you told me that you had something that would be good for me. You told me that there would be something that would be beneficial to me. So I trusted you. I brought you into the intimacy of my own home. 
and you use this tool that you claim is so good, and you used it to destroy things that are precious to me. You used it to destroy things that mean so much to me. And as a result, I want you out of my face. I want you off my property. And I never want to see that tool again. Now, it, it makes sense to be angry. And it makes, it makes sense to have all of those emotions. But the logic here is misplaced. Because the problem in this situation is not the tool. The problem is the fool who misused the tool or abused the tool. And so in healing from church hurt, in many ways, we have to be able to delineate between the tool that in and of itself is good and the fool possibly who in and of themselves may not have the best intentions and may end up abusing or misusing things at our expense. And so what we're going to talk about here is how do we make sure that we don't end up blaming the tool when it's something else or someone else that really is the reason for that so that we don't blame the manufacturer of the tool, we don't blame the one who sold the tool, but we realize that the person who misused or abused it is the, is the person with whom we place blame, which in turn will affect how we heal and move forward. So with all of this, This is why I believe that there's another way beyond just being angry and being bitter. And I've seen this with numerous individuals walking through this path in a healthy way. It can be some of the most gratifying work when we're engaging these topics in this way. The first step to healing from church hurt is properly defining church hurt. Properly defining it. Now, why do we need to do this first? Well, the text that I want us to look at is one that is a, is a constant go-to whenever there are problems in the church. Whenever there are people who are hurt, either by other congregants or by church leaders, there's a go-to passage that is uh, very sufficient to describe what should happen when we have disagreements or even worse, real hurt and pain. There are things that we should know to do, and there's a sign of maturity when we do these things. Let me read it for you. It's in Matthew 18, and we read Matthew 18 often when we come to a place where we're trying to figure out how to deal with church disagreement or even more so church hurt or church pain or when people are sinned against. Matthew 18, verse 15, it reads this way. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, Take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Now, this this is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God that we have it. But this in and of itself can be a little misleading. Because when you know, the scriptures say, and, and I love this, God cares about relationships. God cares about us valuing our relationship. So if we have any type of enmity between one another, it is vitally important that we seek each other out to reconcile. There are other places in scriptures where God says, I don't even want your sacrifices until you actually work out your disagreements with one another. If you have sin against one another and you have not repented first, 
do not even bring me your sacrifices. There are other places where we see God may not even hear our prayers if we don't reconcile properly. So reconciliation is important. God requires that we do it. This passage of scripture makes it very clear. We have issues. We need to work them out. And individually, that's something we need to do. And if we can't do it, we bring impartial parties to be a part of it. But what happens when you have been hurt by church leaders? What happens when you feel like you've been abused by those in church authority? Going to them in many, in many ways, going to the person may not feel safe at all because if there is an unhealthy church leadership structure or a toxic church environment, then going and sharing the pain only, be, only becomes uh, an easier way for people to put a larger target on you and you feel like it's better off me not saying anything at all. So how do we massage Matthew 18 into this? Because clearly that's really talking about this one-on-one thing amongst believers within a church. We don't get a lot of guidance on the best way to handle power dynamics within the church. The principle's still the same, but the dynamics are slightly different. So going back to this, the first step to dealing with church hurt is properly defining it. If your brother sins against you, well, you have to define sin to know if it's happened to you, right? You can't just use sin or hurt as a catch-all for everything you don't like. So it's important that we properly define church hurt. It's why I think that if you have been hurt by the church, please make sure you know the difference between what church is, what church hurt is, and what church hurt is not. Because what we're prone to do is we're prone to take examples in our church experiences wherein we have been disappointed or where our preferences have not been met or where we have been corrected. And because we have negative emotions in response to that, we automatically put that into the church hurt bucket. And that is not church hurt. Please know, if you have been in a situation where you've been in a church and you preferred that they did church one way and you expressed to them, I prefer you do church this way, and then they, in turn, choose not to do it that way, you've not been hurt by the church. Please know that if you're in a situation where uh, maybe you, uh, you, uh, Maybe you there was something that you were doing that uh, biblically, you know, maybe you've hurt someone else and the church is actually calling you to go repent. And you didn't like that you were told that something that you said to a person was actually wrong. And you felt uh, offended that anyone would even imply that something that you've done or said is actually not the right way of comporting yourself. And you were so angry by that. And you feel like that that actually was an example of church hurt. Well. We got to go on this on a case-by-case basis, but by and large, if what happened is really equivalent to actual correction, then it's not church hurt. You may not feel good, and we shouldn't. I mean, we shouldn't feel good if we're facing. A mirror sometimes doesn't always make you feel good. The mirror sometimes shows some things that need to change, and that's a part of sanctification. So, so be careful. Sometimes God is trying to sanctify you and you don't like what sanctification feels like, so you call it church hurt. That's not church hurt. Now, that's all I say about that. We'll have other sermons to talk about correction, but just understand, make sure that you are knowing the difference between church hurt, actual church hurt, 
and either correction or preference is not being met. Now, with that being said, what is church hurt? Church hurt, I'm going to put it very simply. Church hurt is abuse of power. Church hurt is the abuse of power. Church leaders especially do have a degree of power. Churches as a whole have power. But as my kids have loved to to quote from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Churches, church leaders, even church members in certain positions um, have a degree of spiritual power and spiritual authority. So if someone misuses their power, if they if they misuse their power at the expense of another church member, congregant, or anyone, that is abuse. That's it. That is abuse. Anytime you use a thing in a way that it was not intended to be used, it is misuse and then abuse. So you've, this, this means that uh, uh, Oxford defines abuse this way. To act in a manner to cause bad effect or for a bad purpose. Church hurt stems from experiencing someone else abusing their power. That's, where, that's, the, that's the nature, the very origin of church, uh, church hurt. Now, a church does have power, right? And in a good sense, there are, there's, there's power that exists in a church that should be good for all of us. The church has the power to to gather people. The church has the power to encourage people. The church has the power to be a part of healing God's beloved people. On the positive side, church can help you, has the power to do some amazing things for you. Church has the power to encourage yourself and others. We see that in 1 Thessalonians 5. Very, very simple passage that, that w- in which you see Paul uh, encouraging the church to encourage one another. And what does he say? He says it very easily, very quickly, very simply. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. That's incredible call and incredible power. The church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has the power and the ability to lift you up when you feel downtrodden, to encourage you with God's good word when you've been telling yourself all the wrong words. Church has an incredible power to do that. Colossians 3, the the church has incredible power to encourage and to give thanks and marvel at God's wonders. The church has the power to to encourage and to call us to grow in humility, to grow in honest self-awareness. We see that in James 4. The church has the power to call us to grow in wisdom and knowledge, Ephesians 3. The church has the power to care for those who are the most vulnerable, James 1, when he talks about what true religion is, caring for ultimately those that are most marginalized. The church has incredible power and incredible calling. So power by itself isn't bad. Power is inevitable. Somebody's going to have power. Someone's not going to have power. The issue is whether or not that power is being used effectively to care for and advocate, or is it used to just protect and misuse and abuse. So those examples are, are examples that are uh, of healthy usage of church power. But in contrast, when a church leader abuses their power, it has the very opposite effect. 
many times if you've been uh, on the receiving end of, of any form of abuse of power, you'll feel discouraged and disappointed in yourself and other people. You'll have any combination of feelings of anger, confusion, bitterness toward God. You'll have this almost toxic movement towards a a rigid self-denial and self-hatred and a withdrawal. You just feel like I'm not even worth being around these folks and I don't even know, I don't like the way that I felt, but I'm sure I know what they're going to think of me. So I'm just going to keep to myself. And there becomes this almost hermit mentality because of it. Or even worse, you'll find yourself bypassing or denying real pain and real emotion that you're feeling. Because either A, in your mind, you're like, well, maybe I'm not supposed to feel these things, so let me just tell myself I don't feel these things. Or let me convince myself that they're not real. Or let me convince myself that they're coming from some other place, but they can't be authentic, so I don't know what to do with them. Instead of bringing them to God authentically and honestly, we feel the pressure to push them down deep. And they're still doing damage to us in the moment. And and as long as they're there, and all that, hap- all that happens as a result is when we bypass our actual feelings and when we bypass what we're really dealing with and when we stuff it down or use words to say the opposite of what we're actually feeling because that looks like it's more praiseworthy, all we're doing is creating false ideas about who God is and what he expects of us. Because none of that looks like the Jesus that embodies God himself. This idea of us not being honest and authentic about what's really happening, that's not something God calls us to. That's not even the nature of our relationship with God. That wasn't the nature of Jesus' relationship with those on the earth. And so when all of that happens, all, all that means is that in the wounds increase in the vulnerable. Those wounds just get deeper. They fester. They become infected. So step one. Name your church hurt accurately as church abuse. Why do I have to say this? Because it's not enough to just say, you know, I, I, you know, I had some bad things happen before, but, you know, you know I'm trusting God and I'm going to keep moving. It's true. But if we're going to deal with church hurt properly, then think about some, some of these horrific. I came from churches where I've seen, and I'm sure you have as well, some really hard, even horrendous things that have happened at the hands of church leaders or at the hands of people within the church that are defended and advocated for by church leaders. So maybe there's somebody that they don't have any real authority in the church, but they're liked, they're respected, they're defended by the church, and they've done really horrendous, sinful things. That when people are made aware of those things, no real accountability occurs. A person has been hurt and the church does nothing. That is also abuse. I know of a church, several churches actually. Uh, I'm thinking of one in particular when I was younger where a a young girl uh, ended up being pregnant and the church required her to get up in front of the entire congregation in and, and experience this incredible amount of shame apologizing to the congregation for being pregnant. Mind you, there was no man there because how would they ever know? How would they ever prove it? 
Because we're going to, it's very similar to the woman caught in adultery, right? Everybody's ready to stone her, but where's the man that also should have been, you would think, held accountable? Not necessary. And I remember this woman, this young girl, having to get up tearfully, just apologizing to these folks who had nothing to do with her situation. But instead of figuring out how to love this girl and the situation that she was that she was in, getting ready to bring a child in by herself, instead of figuring out what it means to come alongside, love her well, continue to help her, follow God, all those things. Instead, people were more interested in heaping collective shame on her as if that is something that scripture, that God's heart would want. It isn't. So when something like that happens, they forced a young girl to go before the church and apologize for being pregnant. This was an abuse of church power. If a church or a leader told my secrets to others and called it prayer, this is an abuse of church power. If the church tells me that, that or tells someone that their abusive husband's behavior was their fault, that was an abuse of church power. If someone at church tells me that my depression was evidence that I lacked faith, that is an abuse of church power. You see, really, abusing church power simply is to assert and force compliance in something that God never says or commands. Because many times people who are, who are claiming to speak for God are just speaking for self, but they want you to follow their words as if you are following God. So to not follow their words is to then in turn be disobedient to God, and then they can shame you for that. We've got to be careful. This is for all of us. Be very careful about trying to enforce things that God never said. Be very careful about trying to force compliance, not only in things God never said, but things God never did. Things Jesus never showed us. Now, it's okay. We will subjectively create our own little things. Hey, this is something that I want. We agree to, to do this or that. And we have our own individual agreements on a thing. That's fine. But don't try to enforce it the same way you enforce scripture because you then will in turn be abusive. And we wonder why people don't feel comfortable going to church if they've been hurt by church. Listen, if you wonder why people don't come, sometimes people don't come to us and the first thing we want to do is put it on them. People don't come to the church. I'm going to tell you right now, a very common approach in church leadership is to go, well, you never, you never brought it to me and you never said anything. Matthew 18, you didn't follow it. So it's kind of on you, isn't it? And while there is a call to come and share, this, why not start with humility first? Man, if they didn't come to me first, before I start looking to heap shame on them, maybe I should humbly investigate myself first. I wonder why. Did I create or did I overlook the fact that there was not the type of safety present that this person, for this person to feel like they could come and share this pain? If I've caused pain to someone, maybe ask yourself this now. Hypothetically speaking, if you caused pain to a person, people that are close to you, could you honestly say they would feel comfortable coming to you and telling you about it? Honestly. And also, if that's true, I ask you this. How have you been prone to respond when people tell you that they've been hurt by you? 
is it immediate? Is your immediate response um, self-protection, defending? No, you you misunderstood. No, I think that that's something that's a root that's rooted in your heart right now, not mine. Because if that's the case, you have some abusive tendencies, and if you are, uh, and if you are a person in any position of authority or a person that is, uh, a lot of times people with very charismatic personalities can be abusive and not even know it because they take up all the air in the room and everybody wants to get behind them, and so usually no one wants to be the one to tell them, hey, by the way, uh, you're 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 bulldozing, and a lot of the things are good, but some, there's some things you're doing that are painful. Nobody wants to be the person to say that. Because with the same bombastic nature that a person uh, engages, that's the same nature they're going to use when they defend. And people are like, I'm not ready to have to fight that bombast, you know, the nature of that bombasticness, if you will, because I'm not wired that way. And so I'm going to feel completely enveloped by the very essence of who you are. And I don't know that I can do that. So if it's important for us to be in a place of real humility so that we can stop and go, man, if, if people don't feel like they can come to me and share that there's real pain that I've caused, let me not start with blaming them. Let me start with me first. And sometimes that means looking at our networks and going, does anyone feel like they can do that with me? And, and, uh, and, and it has to be anybody in my close circles, right? Family members, friends, do people really feel like they can they can come to me? So, uh, church hurt. We have to acknowledge as church abuse. The second thing and really important, we've got to learn to delineate between church hurt and God's character. There are things that we experience in church, like I said, and we'll make that pain synonymous with what God must want for us, or what must uh, or what God must be uh, demanding be true of us. And so, because pain happens. We can't tell, sometimes we can't tell the difference. Sometimes we're like, well, I've been hurt by the church. God's hurt me. I I got an issue with God right now. We got to be careful because we need to be able to know, okay, if I'm in a situation where I'm at a church that in some abusive ways have advocated for forms of injustice and a lack of mercy or practice a lack of humility, I've got to stop and go, so is that true of God's character? Is God a God that doesn't love justice? Is God a God that does not love mercy? Is God a God that does not advocate and call for humility? Well, we know. We, one of our favorite verses here at this church is Micah 6, 8. We know God's called us to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly. So we know that's God's character. So the moment we experience church hurt that is in a complete incongruence with these three things, then we stop and go, I'm hurt. I'm hurt by the church here, but I realize that that is not reflective of God's nature. If we feel like that uh, uh, we've seen situations where the church is heartless for those who are uh, dealing with real grief or those who are uh, dealing with a real broken heart or uh, the church is engaging with a lack of bridging the gap and making real peace, we don't go, well, God must not be a peacemaker. God must not care about the brokenhearted. God must not care for the poor in spirit. We know that in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, all of those things that Jesus says should be true, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. God cares about those things. So we stop and we go, I'm experiencing 
a uh, church environment where these things are happening and it's painful and it's hurtful, but I know this isn't reflective of who God is. Or I'm experiencing a situation where I have church leadership or people in my church that operate in a high degree of pride. And let me tell you, for all of us, one of the slitheriest principles that we can overlook in our own hearts is pride. You You never see your own pride. You never see your own pride. The person that I know is prideful is the one who loves to tell me how not proud they are. I'm not, I'm not a proud, I'm not a proud person. I don't deal with pride at all. I, I, you know, I pray against pride in my life. You weren't able to dictate or even declare those things about yourself. There are other people who are able to declare that about you. So that's important because churches, in a lot of ways, church leaders or people who are influential in the church might have a degree of pride and not even know it. And you might end up being on the receiving end of that pride and there's no accountability for that. And now you're like, I can't deal with church anymore because seems like that's just, you know, that's how God must work. Truth of the matter is that God stands against the proud and he's for the humble. That's what James 4 says. And just very simply, you've experienced a complete lack of love. And it's easy to say, church folks, they're just not loving. And to be honest, I could understand that. Talk to anybody who's worked in fast food service or, or in any type of restaurant service, restaurant industry. Talk to anybody who's been uh, a, uh, a waiter or a waitress or, or a wait staff of, of a restaurant. And they'll tell you that those who tip amongst the lowest tippers percentage-wise are always church folks. People who, and I'm sure I'm getting some hearty amens out there right now. If you have ever worked in restaurant services of any kind and you have had to wait on certain tables, I'm sure you know this, Sundays are the worst days to go to work because Sundays are the days you know your tips are going to be the least. Church folks and the amount of entitlement sometimes that people will have will be some of the worst tippers. It's really easy to look at church folk and go, you know, I don't really know that they're that loving, so I'm not sure that that version of Christianity and whoever that God is must not be loving either. But we know 1 John says that God is love. God's very presence shows up as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, the fruit of of God's spirit, Galatians 5, 22. So we've got to be able to delineate, demarcate between God's character and these examples of faulty love from folks within the church. Because as we know, The church is filled up of sinners, and the church is filled up of broken folks. That's not an excuse. That's just an explanation. It doesn't excuse those things. Those things need to be held into account. But just understand that when people hurt you, you need to call that out, acknowledge it, validate it, and understand that that is not necessarily reflection of who God is. That's a reflection of some people and even a whole church structure sometimes and a a church in and of itself that needs to increasingly be sanctified and further redeemed by the changing work of God's Spirit. But when you look at the people who uh, are, are abusers of power, we need to be able to see them the way Jesus did. Jesus gave some of his harshest words to religious leaders who judged, criticized, oppressed, and left people out. These folks uh, created cliques and always attempted to maintain their power. Some churches function this way. Jesus called those out. 
He called them vipers. He called them whitewashed tombs. He told them that there are people who love to wash the outside of the cup, but what's inside is wicked. The people who love to worship in front of everyone and then neglect the weightier things. These issues of justice and advocacy and caring and loving the poor and lifting up the brokenhearted. Look at how Jesus talked to those who were suffering. Many times people who are suffering will feel left out or even abused at times, but Jesus drew close to those who were hurting, those who were wounded, those who were sick, those who uh, needed help, those who were suffering. And you know what he never did? Jesus never blamed them for their suffering. Let me just say this really quick. One of the things that has been a huge concern for me within faith circles is that whenever people are suffering from something or dealing with something, maybe it's a long-standing pain from something in the past, it has become very popular to say something. And I know this is going to sound controversial, but I think it bears some, a deep dive. It's become very popular to say, listen, stop talking about that. You are not a victim. You are not a victim. You are not a victim. What is that saying? In many ways, that invalidates something that truthfully happened. You never see Jesus talking that way. You never see Jesus finding ways to invalidate the pain that a person has has suffered, nor do you see him trying to change the nomenclature that would apply to the status that they have having been through something as if that mental exercise will change the fact that you have been on the receiving end of someone abusing you. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging real pain that's happened. Now, do we stay there? No. Do we be held captive by that? No. But if you have been abused, you have been abused. That is is what it means to be a victim. I don't know. We've gotten to this place where there's a stigma that has been attached to the idea of being on the receiving end of abuse. And it only makes people less likely to even identify what they've been through as abuse. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't shame people. He didn't require them to change uh, their story about what has happened to them because that only further marginalizes them. Instead, he encouraged them. He helped them. He treated them with respect. He loved them. He met them in their pain and did what was necessary to heal and allow them to walk through that. The way that Jesus cared for the marginalized, the way that he showed a real soft heart for those that were the outcast, those that were called the sinners, the rebels, the people that other folks tended to despise. You remember, we referenced earlier, the woman that was caught in adultery. This woman who had... uh, Somehow, we don't know all the story. We just know that the people who had her claimed they caught her in the act and they brought her out to stone her. They caught her. Somehow, the guy got away. They picked up stones to kill her. And you see what Jesus did. Jesus, he goes to these men. He writes something. We don't know what he writes. There's a lot of theories on what he might have written. May have written some of the men's names who had been with her, and maybe those men were there too. But whatever it was, he writes these things, and then he says, now, any of you all that haven't sinned, go ahead and cast that first stone. And they they all walked away. What did Jesus do? Turned the tables first and said, the reason why you want to stone this woman is not because of your righteousness. It's because of your pride. 
And your pride is the reason. That's what enables you to actually overlook someone that you should be caring for, advocating for, and loving. Now, Jesus still did. He did something else in that story that we might look at as church hurt, right? Because what does he do? He corrects this woman too. Hey, these are things that you're doing. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. So Jesus says, I'm still going to identify the thing in you that needs to be changed, the thing in you that needs to be corrected, because that's love. But I'm also going to make sure that other people don't victimize you in a way that shows they don't love or advocate for you. Because that's what it means to be a part of a healthy spiritual environment. Doesn't matter if you're in a place that's equivalent to the wrong side of the tracks or because you have a history in your past of decision making that will put you on the wrong side of the relational track. Doesn't matter. Jesus says you have value. Jesus says that I love you. Jesus says I'm giving my life for you and I'm going to ensure that you are advocated. You are going to be advocated for. So in living out Matthew 18, with all of that said, if the church culture is toxic, it is going to be crucial to get a healthy perspective from someone who might even be outside of that environment. For example, we look at people that we trust, that we love, a counselor, trusted advisor, and go, I'm in a situation where I feel like things are very toxic. I don't feel safe being able to go to church leadership, and I just want to know, I want to get wisdom on, a do, on how to do that. Why do I say this? It's so important to wait sometimes until we know we have a strong network. Because once you're clear about the nature of your church hurt, you might try to communicate these boundaries and these issues with certain leaders or people in the church. But if they already have a built-in defense network around them, it won't feel safe. You'll feel like you're one person going against an army. And I'm not saying it should be that way. I'm just saying in some situations it is. And we need to be aware. And if we are in leadership, we need to be reevaluating our own structures to go, is this a safe place for people to bring real pain? Is this a safe place for people to come? If there's correction that's needed on our part, is this a safe place for that to happen? Very rarely will people identify their own structures as toxic. Sometimes the only way you know is by listening to the people who are on the receiving end of that toxicity. And the final thing that we need to do in, in trying to live this out and heal well, we need to redeem our spiritual disciplines. Our spiritual practices, they need to be reclaimed. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is this. If somebody betrayed your trust by saying, I'm going to be praying for you, their actions, after they said they will pray for you, and then they abuse you in that, the example I used earlier, I'm going to be praying for you. And then the very thing that you sensitively and privately shared with them, all of a sudden, you find out seven other people from church going, hey, I heard about that thing that you did. I just want you to know I'm praying for you. You feel completely exposed, completely betrayed. And church leadership has spread this and disseminated this out everywhere. And you made it very clear. This is very close. This is very private. This is very, I'm, I, I'm, I'm shaken by this. I don't know that I want anybody else knowing this. Somebody does that after saying they want to pray for you and you've dealt with real pain in that sense. You can get to a place where the idea of prayer will feel uncomfortable. I'm not saying that that's good. I'm saying that's just real. You will feel like, I don't even know that I can trust prayer right now because all these people who said they were praying for me, 
They're praying to the same God that I'm praying to, but somehow that God didn't stop them from doing these things that are harmful to me. I don't know what to trust. And so in healing in this way, this is how we reclaim vitally important spiritual practices, even like prayer. In the same way, certain Bible verses have been used to bring unspeakable pain upon people. You look at churches that uh, that are, you know, we would say are good churches in theory, but you can also look at environments that we look at as even dangerous cults. And what they have in common is they can all use scriptures to make people do whatever it is they want them to do versus whatever it is God has called us to do. And so if somebody uses a scripture or a group of scriptures in order to do things or to abuse you in a certain way, and you've gone through years of that, it can be very difficult at times to even know if you can trust reading the scriptures. I'm not saying it's good, but I'm saying that's how it is. There are people who have been abused by by people misusing the Bible. And so folks go, I just don't even know if I can trust what's in there. I listened to a pastor once tell a woman, listen, there's nowhere in the Bible that says that a woman can divorce her husband if he beats her. There's nothing in the scripture that says that a woman should have the right to divorce her husband if she is abused by her husband. And in that, I'm telling you, there are folks who have been like, if that's true, and I have to just stay and be a battering ram in order to glorify God, I don't know that I can trust this thing. Because there are people who've watched their parents or their mother be killed because they stayed in an environment where the church said, just keep staying. This one particular church said, keep staying, pray for your husband, and God will change him. And horrific things ensued afterward. That kind of advice given from ostensibly the authority of Scripture makes people go, I just don't know if I can trust. I don't know what to trust there then. Because if that's true, and I'm seeing real damage happen as a result, I don't know how to trust that. And so when we learn how to do what we said before, separate God's character from this really either bad ways of misrepresenting Scripture or misinterpreting Scripture or misrepresenting God's character, if we learn to separate that, now we can reclaim practices that were never meant to be abused in that way. Prayer was never, be, was never meant to be abused in that way. The scriptures were not meant to be abused in that way. So if I can separate that, I can reclaim that. I can take that negative thing, that negative abuse, that negative misuse, and transform it into a positive. Why? How? By redefining old harmful words or harmful scriptures in these new, the, the, in the new ways, and not even the new ways, the old ways that they were originally intended. And so we stop and we go, I can, I can reclaim prayer now. Now that I know God's heart and I understand his character, I can pray those attributes back to him. I can pray and long for God to continue to reveal himself in these healthy ways. I can keep my eyes open and look at something beautiful and comforting that reminds me of God's character. I can talk to God out loud. I can can, uh, listen to uh, soothing music and be reflective of these good things about God's character. In other words, if we don't get to a place, if we're dealing with church hurt, and we are, as many of us are, we don't get to a place where we know what it means to cling to who Jesus really is 
then there's a false view of Jesus that has been kind of hoisted upon us. And that's who we're running from. We're running from a false understanding of who Jesus is because of the false Jesus that's been given to us through the forms of church abuse, through the forms of church hurt. So I'll close with this. You and I need to be reminded that God is against church hurt. God is, he hates church hurt. Why? Because God hates sin. And God, from all from the beginning to now, has always desired to meet you in these tender places, in these difficult, painful places. He wants to meet you there, and he indeed wants to provide healing. The ways in which we have felt forced, controlled, or manipulated is not at all the way God wants to engage with us. God wants to restore, reclaim, redeem the goodness in your life that may have been taken away by an abusive leader or an abusive church context or an abusive church movement or an abusive co-congregate in a church. God wants to redeem that. So we begin our healing process by doing the things we said. Define church hurt as abuse. Separate the harmful behavior from God's character. Recover what it means to have real, healthy, emotional, and spiritual community so that we can have real support and reclaim our spiritual practices. When we do this, we remain reminded that we are never alone, that God is always there. And his miraculous power of his presence, of his character, of his love will always remain. That's what we cling to. So when we're hurt and we're hurt by the church, my only, my only charge would be continue to look for and cling to who Jesus is. Cling to who, what his character is. Cling to what his attributes are. And in so doing, we won't start creating or recreating a false Jesus, because that's a Jesus that will always let us down. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for showing us, continually showing us who you truly are. God, I pray that even as many of us are still healing from real church hurt and abuse, and in the midst of some of that deconstruction, we're trying to figure out who you really are. And God, I pray that each and every one of us will discover or rediscover these attributes, these uh, characteristics of you, things that truly run counter to what we've experienced. And Lord, I speak for the person who might say, well, I read this here and I've heard that these things are true, but I don't know that I've ever seen it really made manifest in church. God, I respect that and I I validate that those things are true for, for, for some and so, God, I pray that you will reveal yourselves to all of, yourself to all of us. Show us who you really are. Help us cling to who you really are and separate from all the ways that you are not. Lord, I pray that you would bring real conviction and humility on all of us in any form of authority, either formal or informal. I pray that you would show us areas where we have pride, a lack of humility, a lack of love, God, move us to a place where we are broken in our own sin to the point 
where we want to make it right, where we want to genuinely reconcile. And God, I pray also for those of us who, because of our own pride and lack of humility, we may be confusing or conflating our own disappointment, our lack of preferences being met, or our resistance to correction. And we may have called that church hurt. God, I pray that you will sanctify us there and the areas that need to be changed and corrected continue to correct us. Lord, allow us to give up some of the idols in our hearts that may be preferences that we hold to and we've exalted to ultimate things. Allow that also to be broken. But God, more than anything else, I pray that you will give us an, a renewed view and a renewed vision of who you are and who your church should be and all the ways that you love your church, even in all of her brokenness, and that you are redeeming us and you are redeeming your body until you return. So God, let us cling to you in such a way that we keep looking for you in your church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's receive this benediction, this final blessing from God today. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power the right kind of power, both now and forever. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.